And so we're going to move quickly through what is the fifth sign. And so in John chapter 6, we have this uh, story of the fifth sign that Jesus performed in the book of John. Remember, these are signs that he says to prove or to show that you should believe in him as the son of God. And I don't know about you, but I love the fact that over the last few weeks, my sinuses, you may not be able to hear this, but my allergies don't love the fact that things are starting to bloom. Spring seems to be in the air. That doesn't mean we won't have another week of 20 degree weather, but because we live in Tennessee, but spring is starting to be there. And there was a sign at my house growing up. I grew up in the late seventies, early eighties. There was a sign that spring was here to stay and summer was on the way, that we were through all of that cold weather. And it was something that got put in the backyard on the patio. We didn't have a covered patio. We just had a patio and we had matching sets of this. We got a picture. Y'all know that, right? I mean, you may have ever sat in one of these, right? I think in the eighties they were government issued. Everybody had them. Um, that's just, that's a lawn chair, a basic lawn chair. Well, um, this morning as we begin, I want to tell a story that involves this kind of lawn chair from Sears particularly. Happened in 1982, July 2nd, 1982. Um, a couple of commercial airline pilots in the Long Beach, California area reported that there was an unidentified flying object in the air, in their lanes. And they tried to communicate with the person, and the person did not have a transponder to communicate with air traffic control. He did have something to communicate with his local buddies. Because you see, the unidentified flying object was this man, Larry Walters, who tied 43 weather balloons to his lawn chair, his Sears lawn chair, packed him. You may be able to see some of this. I'll I'll kind of point it out here. Packed him some weights to ballast so that he could control where he was going. Packed himself a shotgun and a Coca-Cola, two liter. All right? Actually, it's not a shotgun. It's a BB gun. His plan was to have his friends tie him up to a car, put the 43 balloons on there, and then cut the ties and let him float to about 2,000 feet, float somewhere to like the Mojave Desert, and be done. When they cut the tethers, he did not rise to 2,000 feet, nor 4,000 feet, nor 6,000 feet. He went to 16,000 feet. And the winds took him into the flight space for Long Beach Airport. Here's a picture of him in the air, strapped to a Sears lawn chair, with his BB gun and his two-liter Coca-Cola. Now, his intention was to have the BB gun to be the descent plan. He was going to begin to shoot the balloons one by one to bring himself down. When he realized that he was in a flight space that he was not supposed to be, like when he saw airplanes in his level, he ham-radioed his friends and said, I don't think we informed air traffic control I was going up. Can someone let them know? At some point, he got the courage and the nerve to begin to shoot the balloons, and he did begin to descend until he got caught in electrical wiring above the street. 
Now, fortunately, he had put, this is made of non-conductive material, so he wasn't electrocuted. He jumped out of the chair for a significant fall to be met by numerous officials of the local police department who took him into custody for flying in restricted airspace in a Sears lawn chair carrying a BB gun and a Coca-Cola. There were also news reporters there. We're not the first generation to have news reporters. In 1982, they made it to the place that he landed, and they interviewed him that day and asked him the very simple question, why? To which he responded, a man just can't sit there. That's it. You got to do something in life. And you think, what in the world does that have to do with the fifth sign of Jesus? Well, we'll get there in a minute. But I want you to think about that phrase. Sometimes you can't just sit there. You got to do something. John chapter 6, starting in verse 16, says this. When evening came, now just a quick reminder, Noah preached last week about Jesus feeding the 5,000. This is Immediately after that, this is the same day as that, when everybody had fed, when everybody had done all they were going to do. If you remember where Noah left off last week in the story, what was saying there is that they wanted to come and make him king. And so Jesus decided to get away. And so his disciples go down to the sea, they get in a boat, and they start across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. So... There are multiple places where this story is told, but let's just think about this setting for a moment. Most of you know what's going to happen in a moment, but think about the setting for a second. It's dark. Light. Dark. We find out in a moment they're two to three miles out in the middle of the sea. I don't know if you've ever been in a field or somewhere where it is completely dark. Also don't know, my guess is you haven't, been on a boat two miles into a sea when it's completely dark and storming. That is what I call an unsettling situation. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? The disciples were, in a word, freaked out. It gives us this idea that the high wind arose, the sea began to churn. The picture here is literally a, it may have been a storm, it may just have been high wind, high waves, that things were buffeting the boat, they can't see anything, they're yelling at each other, they, they don't know where they're going, they don't know how far they've got to go. It's the middle of the night, they've had a long day. This is not like they rested all day and then they got out in the boat. They are exhausted, they want to go to bed, and they can't go to bed because they're rowing against it and they can't get anywhere. And everything in them is just terrified. Next verse. After they had rowed about three or four miles, I love how casually the next sentence is. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. He says it like it's a matter of fact thing. Now, what I really like is, It says he was coming near the boat and they were afraid. This story is told in Matthew and Mark as well. And in the Matthews version, it says that one of them yells out, It's a ghost! Now, I know that's probably how you read it when you read the Bible. But it says they screamed. That's If you were out in pitch black storm coming and you see something walking on the water to you, you're not going to go, Wow, I believe that might be an apparition. 
you're going to yell, it's a ghost, right? And they're scared to death. This is what Jesus says to him in that next moment. He said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. They were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. (laughs) That's one of those details that's missed a lot of times. They got to where they were going. He got in the boat, and they were there. I don't know if that's like um, like an immediate thing. If Jesus pushed the boat while he was walking, got behind it, and went, and climbed in, and it was there. That's probably not what happened. That's just my uh, speculation. But for some somehow they are there. They arrive the moment Jesus gets in the boat. So here's what I want to do today. That's it. That's the story. John tells us the kind of simplest telling of that story. But even in John's telling, there is one significant fact about Jesus. And I think the reason John tells us this story so succinctly is because his gospel is only concerned, really, with showing you to believe in Jesus. We're going to talk about some applications from other places, from Matthew and Mark's version of this story, that are for us. But really, the only thing we get out of John's gospel story is simply this. Jesus is the great I am. He is equal to and is God. And you say, I did not see that in that. I mean, I understand the miracle thing, but that's a pretty bold statement. If you are versed in theology or the history of the church or what church is about, you can understand. That's a pretty big statement. The great I am, like I am that I am, like Yahweh, he is that. And there are clues in this passage that will help us to understand. And I want to show you that, a couple of other verses to prove this, and then I'm going to talk about a couple of applications for our personal lives. Here's what I want you to see. When Jesus comes to them, it tells us, here's the verse. He said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. We, we read that and we kind of read that and go, okay, that's fine. Jesus is just like, hey guys, it's me. It's me, it's Jesus. Don't worry, it's me. Jesus, I'm here. And they're like, oh, it's Jesus. We're not afraid. But there is major significance in the words he says here. In the actual original words. So I'm going to put the original words up there for you to see them. That you don't have to remember all this. I just want you to, to understand some things, okay? But he said to them, ego me." Don't be afraid. Ego me. All right, remember that. The Greek phrase, it means, I am he, it is I. That is a good translation, but there's a better one for this verse. In a couple of chapters over, in John chapter 8, and we won't be able to cover this because it's part of a discourse that Jesus has, Jesus gets in an argument with some people about who he is, and he starts to talk about Abraham. You know, last week, uh, Noah did a great job talking about how Jesus is the, the greater Moses, and there's this, walking on water, by the way, is demonstration of that, that he is like Moses who took the people through the sea, except Jesus doesn't have to have the sea parted. He is greater than Moses. He walked on the sea. But there's this story in the next couple of chapters where not only is he the greater Moses, he's the greater Abraham. And they begin to have this discussion. And as they're having this discussion, Jesus makes a comment about the fact that Abraham was so excited for the day of Jesus. In fact, that's what it says. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Now the Jews said to Jesus, you aren't even 50 years old yet. Now, we think Jesus was probably around 30 to 33 years old, somewhere in that range here. So he definitely wasn't 50. They're just being generous. Like, in their day, it was considered better to be older. 
greater to be older. They're being generous. Like, you're like a 50-year-old, wisdom-wise. Like, today, when my daughters are trying to flatter me, they say the opposite. Dad, you're only like 29. Yeah, thanks, girls. That's not true, right? So we're like, you're not even 50. And he says, Jews replied, you aren't 50. You've seen Abraham? That's impossible. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, this is a little bit of a trick question because I've already kind of given you the answer. Everybody kind of sees here that he's referencing that point in Exodus when God says, I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Anybody want to guess what two words make up that phrase in the original language? I've got it for you. Ego me. One other example. Remember that Exodus passage? Chapter 3, burning bush. I remember that. Bush is burning, not being consumed. Now, the original Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but they translated it into Greek, and they used it for years in Greek. And just so you remember, Exodus chapter 3, 14, God replied to Moses. Moses, remember, God says, I need you to go and rescue my people. And God replied to, or Moses said to God, who am I even going to tell them to sit me? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you tell them. I am who I am. Sent me to you. When they did the Greek translation of that, any guesses what they used for the two words for I am who I am? Ego me. God replied to Moses, ego me. Back to our passage. Jesus is walking on the water. And you could put in there, he said to them, I am who I am. Don't be afraid. It's more than just the, hey man, it's Jesus. Like we take it very casually. Like if I were walking on water, first of all, that's not going to happen. But if I were, and somebody said, hey, well, it's a ghost. You go, no, don't worry, guys. It's just Lyle. Just Lyle. It's fine. Like, you know, or, or um, when anybody comes into our house, uh, our dog goes absolutely nuts. Like nuts. And when we open the door, the dog goes nuts because who could it be? And we have to go, it's me. Stella, it's me. It's me. It's okay. Like, that's how I, for a long time, took this passage of Jesus. Hey, guys, it's me. It's okay. It's me. It's I. But coded in that language that is used by John, Jesus is saying, Yahweh is here. I am who I am. Jesus is the great I am. The point of this, there are people that claim that Jesus never claimed to be God, and they just haven't read the New Testament very well. Because to say it the way he said it here would be a direct declaration that he is equal with the Father. That's important for us, that we recognize and we serve Jesus as Lord. Not a God, not one of many choices, but as the one and only. We boldly proclaim in this place the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way to the Father. That there is no other name under heaven by which might be saved except Jesus. On Friday night when Sam Landreth was here and declared to our students that if you want to be saved, it means following Jesus, accepting his salvation He was asking them if they have placed their trust in I am who I am, in ego of me. 
Same question for you today. Have you placed your trust, your life, your career, your family, your decisions, everything you are into the hands of I am who I am? In the other tellings of this particular miracle, this fifth sign, there are some things for us to take out of it too. By the way, Mark reinforces this idea. Because in Mark's gospel, there's this interesting little detail. It says, we're out there struggling against the wind. It says, Jesus walked to them and intended to pass them by. Which I always read, thought, that's kind of mean. Right? Can you imagine guys struggling at the oars? And Jesus like, hey dudes, what's going on? I'll see you on the other side when you get there. But if you understand the language that's used there, what he's doing is, in the Old Testament, if you remember in Moses, again, the Moses imagery, that God passed by Moses, it's a term of the fact that God is present in the place. Now, we know this story, right? Those of you who grew up in church, been around church, Jesus isn't the only one to walk on the water, right? Right? Who else walks on water? Peter, right? And so the other points, or two other points of this message, and then we're done. And the first one is a simple point, is if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. Here's the story from Matthew's perspective. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, so this is the whole ego of me, it is me, it is I. Tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And then Peter stepped down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Now, we could go into lots of stuff today. I'm not going to go into lots of stuff, but I'm just going to tell you this. Following Christ will mean taking risks, that the Savior calls you to take. John Ortberg, uh, in a book that I highly recommend, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. It's a great book. On, that's a whole book about this particular passage. He calls the other 11 in the boat, boat potatoes. That all of them had the opportunity, right? They all could have said, hey, let me come out there. But Peter, sometimes Peter's... Um, Lack of tact got him in trouble. But sometimes it allowed him to experience life like nobody ever has. As far as I know, there are only two people in the history of the world that have walked on water. Jesus and Peter. He got to experience things that nobody else did because he was willing to take a step of faith and to follow Jesus when everybody else would have thought he's crazy. Our students have been challenged this week to carry the name of Jesus with them, to be the bearers of the image of God in their schools and in their community and in our church. And I'm challenging us to do the same thing. But if that's going to happen, it means that we're going to have to leave some things of comfort. We're going to have to step down out of our places that we think are are safe and secure and even are good for us in order to do things that allow us to experience life like no other's. God may be calling you to radical obedience. And I don't know what you consider radical obedience, but getting out of a boat in the midst of the storm to walk on top of the water is radical obedience. And then the second lesson for us in the midst of this, and then we're done, is that when you fail, refocus on Jesus. And you will fail. I love that this little bit is included in there because we know, right? I don't have to read the story to you. You know what happens, right? 
What happens to Peter? He gets distracted by the wind and he falls. I don't know why, but I was growing up and they were telling this story on flannel graphs and children's church. Y'all remember those before we had screens, the flannel graphs? I just always, my, my teacher, I just, for whatever, this image is in my mind of my teacher taking Peter, walking on the water, and then he just gradually kind of sinks. I don't think it was a gradually kind of sinks. Because if you lose the ability to walk on water, you don't gradually fall. Right? This was failure. This was collapse. This was underwater, in a storm, immediately, like, what am I doing? And Jesus reached down his hand, and Peter was saved from the storm by Jesus. Here's what it says in Matthew's version. But when he saw the wind, that's Peter, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately he reached out his hand, caught him. You a little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Sometimes we say that as a rebuke. There's a little bit of rebuke there, but it's simply also just, just trust me. Can I tell you this? We're all going to make major mistakes. We're all going to fail. We're all going to say something we shouldn't say. We're all going to do something we shouldn't do. We're all going to think things we shouldn't think. We're all not going to do some things we should do. We're not going to reach out to people that we should. We're going to miss opportunities to share the gospel with people. We're going to miss opportunities to connect with people. We are going to fail again and again and again because we have not been made completely whole yet by Jesus. That day is coming. It's not here yet. The question we have to ask ourselves is when we fail, when we start that sinking sensation or we are completely overwhelmed by the wind and the waves around us, where will our focus be? And the lesson we learn from Peter experiencing life like nobody else's experience is that when it all collapsed underneath him because of his own failure, Jesus was still there to rescue. And we just fix our eyes on him. Hebrews chapter 12 says that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That when we run our race, that we run throwing off the sin and all the things that easily entangle us. And that we focus our attention completely on Jesus and follow him. We have a group of youth this week that had a great weekend. They have recommitments in their lives and things that they're going to do. And when they go to school tomorrow, they're going to be around hundreds of people that had no such experience this weekend. And they're going to get smacked in the face. And some of them are going to fail in the days and the weeks ahead. And we as a church need to be there to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to lift them up when they need us to. To encourage them in their walk. To encourage them to continue on. To encourage them to take this weekend of life that they experience like others have not experienced it. And to trust the Lord in the midst of it. There are some of you in this room that are, if you were to say, where are you in your walk with Christ or in your life right now? You would say, I am underwater and fading fast. And you need to know. That as a believer in Christ, if you have made that commitment, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been saved. That his hand is always extended to you for you to refocus on him and to be pulled out of wherever you are. And not in some self-help kind of way, in a completely trusting in Jesus to deliver you kind of way.
It doesn't matter what's going on financially, what's going on physically, what's going on emotionally, what's going on in relationships in your life. If you focus on Jesus, he can rescue. And he will. There may be some of you today that have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You never stepped out of that boat initially to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Noah mentioned 13 decisions. We're following up on those. Some of those are, many of those are first time ever to say, Jesus, I want to be saved. I want to accept you as my Savior. There may be some of you in this room today that have never done that. And today's the day for that. There may be some of you that literally your step out of the boat is to get into the water. To be baptized for the first time. Maybe you've been saved, but baptism is something you've never done. Can I tell you right now that we, we have a date set aside. We're going to do a baptism service. We're hoping that several of these that this weekend that, that um, gave their life to Jesus will be able to participate in it. It's the week after Easter. You do not want to miss April at our church. April 3rd, next week, is big service. We're going to eat together afterwards. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end of the service. But you want to be here for that. Palm Sunday is April 10th. We get to do the community Easter egg hunt after that. The next Sunday is Easter, the 17th, and then on the 24th, we're going to have a huge baptism service. That's pretty awesome. Amen? You don't want to miss that. You want to be here for Amen. Maybe you need to be one of those that get out of the boat and get in the water. I'm going to be standing down here today. I'd love to have a conversation with you if that's you. Noah's going to be standing down here as well. There may be some youth that want to come and talk to him, or you may want to come talk to Noah. I'll just ask you, if the Lord's calling you to do anything today, get out of the boat, respond, do what he's called you to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your goodness, your grace, your mercy that allows us to come to you again and again when we fail. We're especially glad for your grace and your mercy that allows us that first time to be saved by you. We pray, Lord, that you would give us just an understanding in our own lives what needs to happen, how we need to commit our lives to you. We pray that if there's someone in this room that does not know you yet as their Savior, Lord, that they'll come today and say, I mean, I don't even know what I'm doing, but I've got to do that. I've got to be saved. Got to have an acceptance from Jesus. May there someone here, Jesus, come and pray at the front, Lord. I pray that you would give them the courage to do that. Maybe someone needs to be baptized or join the church or just has something else on their heart they need to do. Lord, I pray that today that people would be willing to get out of the boat and surrender to the great I Am. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.